Okay, I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Episode 27 is Shane Heal, an absolute legend of Australian basketball. One of my favorite players growing up. I remember going down to the Kingdome and watching him play for the Sydney Kings. He was just a great three-point shooter. I just remember him just bombing from 30 feet out. Just absolute inspiration, considering he wasn't a huge point guard, but, you know, he just... He worked to his strengths, and that was his three-point play, and he achieved so much. He went to four Olympic Games. He played in the NBA twice, one for the San Antonio Spurs and then for the Minnesota Timberwolves as well. You know, he also, you know, was the first captain of a premiership win in Sydney. So that was a huge amount of expectations, especially when you consider that Sydney Kings have always been a bit of an underachieving NBL. He also played three years in Greece, so dominated the European League as well. So Shane's pretty much done it all in basketball, so really stoked to get him on today. Forget Shane on, just a big shout-out to everyone tuning in, leaving me messages of support. If you want to connect with me, Facebook, you can get me at Talking With TK, or if you want to send me an email, send it to Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Love to hear any of your guest suggestions or anything I can do to improve the show, I'm always looking to improve here and there, so please reach out and let me know what I can do better because I'm always open and ready to do something new. But without further ado, let's get to our interview with Shane Hill. Hi, my special guest is Shane Hill. Shane is a former grade of Australian basketball where he played at the highest level in the NBA for Minnesota and San Antonio. He represented his country, astonishing four Olympic Games, and also led the Sydney Kings to its first championship. Away from the game, he has made a successful transition into both coaching and media, and I'm honoured to welcome the Hammer, Shane Hill. Shane, welcome to the show, bud. Yeah, great to be on. Thanks for the introduction. All right, Shane, let's start with something that's actually been intriguing me pretty much my whole life. The nickname, The Hammer, where did it come from and who gave it to you, mate? Well, it depends on who you speak to. I've got a few mates that like to take, um, you know, claim for that. But um, uh, I guess the uh, the main one is I did a bit of boxing when I was growing up and got into a few scuffles and things like that. So um, they started calling me Hammer after a, a, a little scuffle that we had at some stage as a young, silly man. Boy, <laughs> I guess it probably explains a few things, seeing that uh, you go after Charles Barkley, who's about double his size and the same as Vince Carter. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You sort of grow up that way, and uh, yeah, sometimes you you know bite off a little bit more than you can chew. But yeah. that's life. <laughs> Shane, I saw, saw you recently in America, you know, in Ice Cube's Big Three comp. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, it's. Um, it's a great concept and I think it's just going to continue to take off. And obviously he put his money where his mouth is and created the first ever sort of pro ex NBA players, um, three on three competition. And, um, I went over there. I was part of 64 players that were chosen to be in the draft and I was the only international player. So I got ready for about weeks and lost about seven kilos and was working out just like I was as a pro player and um, gave me something to aim for and went over there for about 10 days and um, uh, didn't end up getting drafted, but actually played really well. I was a bit surprised. Before I went over, I, I thought, well, it's a long shot that I could actually get drafted on 46, nearly 47. The competition's for over 30, so there's some players that 
you know, still playing pro basketball in, in Europe and Asia and everything else. So I thought it was a bit of a long shot, but once I actually got there and, and got amongst it, um, I played some really good basketball, knocked down a whole lot of threes, hit a buzzer beater, and, and uh, was pretty confident that I was going to get drafted. But once you sort of seeing, saw the names drafted and then you hear them make their speeches and realise that there's a whole lot of existing relationships and that, you know, yeah. they've known each other you know, a long period of time and start drafting people, you know, that you're mates with, but also that you sort of know their history and, you know, potentially play together and, and whatever else, you sort of understand it. So it was a good experience and uh, enjoy watching it on TV and there's some, some great players out there that are still playing. Yeah, who were some of the big names that, that participated? Well, you've got the, obviously, the guys that were already contracted, the guys like Steve Jackson, who started his career with the Sydney Kings, believe He's it or not. Him, um, but yeah, yeah, I played with him. He got injured um, real early on, so he didn't sort of play for too long, but um, really good guy. Um, obviously went on to have an unbelievable um, pro career. I think he averaged him uh, 16 as an NBA player. Uh, so guys like him and Chauncey Phillips, um, you know, that are you know guys that are still fit enough to be able to play some really good basketball and young enough to touch in their 30s, I think. So, um, yeah, it's been good to be able to watch them. Yeah, Shane, let's go back to the start. Have you had a good chance to sit down with your family and your, your close friends and really just reflect on everything you have achieved in the game? No, not really. Um, I'm writing a book at the moment, um, autobiography, and, and I've been doing it for a few years now. I'm up to about 50,000 words. So you start oh, to wow. sort of reflect a bit more about your career and um, you know some of the dreams that you know I had as a young fella and set lofty you know, goals and dreams to be able to play for Australia. And um, sometimes when you reflect back, you sort of think, yeah, I was pretty lucky to be able to get a chance to be able to go and do that and experience so many different things, not only in, in the NBA, but also in Europe where, you know, it was a great opportunity to be able to, you know, enjoy basketball. Yeah, because your dad was your first coach and from recollection, you told him as a youngster you were going to go to Olympic Games. Was that, is that correct? Yeah, as a 12-year-old, he... he um, I told him that I wanted to you know, go to the Olympic Games and play for Australia, and I'd always be in the backyard visualising that I was playing for Australia and you know pretending that playing against the Americans and hitting gangers and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, lucky enough to be able to sort of knuckle down and, and get some chances and, and be able to live those dreams. Yeah, we always, you know, you always seem, you seem to be a very competitive person. So I'm sure I'm assuming that's come down from when you were a child. But you know, your big your big shot was a big three-pointer. So where did that develop? At what age? Yeah, I mean, it developed in the backyard, but realising that I was never going to be tall, so I was going to have to be able to, you know, <laughs> knock out shots. And, you know, you get told so many times as a, as a young guy that, you know, you can't make it. You're too small to be able to make it. And it sort of didn't resonate with me because I thought, well... That doesn't make sense. So, you know, even if I'm small, what about if I'm a better shooter? What about if I'm a better competitor or fitter than everybody else to dribble a ball better? So yeah. um, I knew that I had to go and work on those things to be able to make that happen and, and um, you know, became a three-point shooter that, um, you know, that could knock them down in games. And then I started developing that, that, you know, I'd shoot it from behind my head so then <laughs> I didn't get blocked. And, and then I'd start shooting from... You know, crazy range, and you know, on stages, people said, "No, you can't do that. Don't shoot from that far out." But you just keep developing a belief because I just 
spent so much time in the backyard practicing over and over and over again. I knew I could make those shots and started putting it into play in the game. So, um, you know, I watch guys like Steph Curry and the way the game's played now, and I feel like back in those days, people didn't sort of shoot the ball from as far out. And, um, you know, I always believed that the three was more valuable than the two, and you'd argue with people all day long that, you know, they shouldn't be tied up in the same stats. They should be recorded differently because uh, how they do that with an adjusted field goal percentage. But, um, yeah, I was probably a little bit ahead of my time as far as the, the style that I played with. Yeah, how much practice did you actually have to do, especially with that deep range? Like, to get pull that off, it was quite astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy how hard I worked. Um, you know, and, and people would tell my parents all the time that I had a crazy work ethic when it came to the sport. And, but I didn't even, I didn't see it as work. It was just something that I loved to do. I was so passionate yeah. about playing basketball. And it was, it was one of those things that, you know, basketball's a great sport that you can go and do it alone. Um, so I would play one-on-one against my brother and he'd get sick of it and go inside and try and play against my mum. And I outgrew her and then she started playing defence with a broom to sort of make it harder. And But then I'd just spend hours on my own and, again, just challenge myself um, how many shots I can hit in a row and how many I need to make from this spot and then the next spot and then off an up fake and one dribble and then step back and just kept developing my game and um, you know it's something that I, I really see in Australian basketball that's missing now is you know kids aren't generally spending enough time making shots and they practice so much with teams and structured sessions with offense and defense but they don't put in the same sort of time shooting the ball that I did growing up and uh, you know I think ultimately that's probably going to hurt us at stages. Yeah, is that something you try to get through to the young fellas and young ladies? Because you've got your... Is it, it's called the Elite Basketball Development where you mentor people, right? Yeah, so I've got um, my own training academies and, and um, you know, try and do as much as I can with that about educating people of what it's going to take. So giving them the right techniques um, and then practising those techniques over and over and over again and, you know, I think even if they're playing rep basketball or for the state or even for Australia, um, they still need to be doing the sort of work and getting up hundreds and hundreds of shots um, at game pace to be able to give them the confidence when they get into games to be able to knock it down. And I hear all the time, I hear people say, you know, you've got to have confidence, you've got to believe in yourself. But, you know, you don't, you don't really get confidence until you do the work. And then it's then you really gain that confidence and you really believe that you're going to knock down those shots because you've seen it go through the net so many times over and over. Shane, you started relatively young. You would have signed, what, your first contract around, what, 16, 17 years old? Yeah. Yeah, so I was at the Institute um, for year 11, um, had a couple of clubs um, go after me and, and, you know, it wasn't a really big college thing back then. Um, yeah. You know, I was at the Institute with Luke Longley and Andrew Wahoff, who both went the college route. Um, and I had um, a college go after me hardcore, um, but I wanted to. You know, I just wanted to stay in Australia. I wanted. I wanted to play for Australia, and, and felt like I could compete at the NBL level and sign my contract when I was 16. And I was 17 by the time I played my first season. I was um, year 12, but decided to play professionally rather than doing year 12. Yeah. Do you even remember what you signed for? Uh, yeah, it wasn't a big contract, but it was. Um, I actually worked for the club full time. Okay. So uh, was that Supercats? 
No, the Brisbane Bullets, so they'd won a championship the year before and I worked with Larry Senstock and Robert Sibley worked full-time and going around to schools every day and promoting the sport. And uh, I think the to play and to work full-time was about $30,000 or something. Um, so back then, that was probably, you know, okay oh, money. Big money, yeah. Um, but when you look at it to work full-time as well, um, it was hard work because you're on your legs all day. Um, but, you know, it's sort of, there's a direct correlation between getting out there to the schools and, and building people's profiles and, and really filling those stadiums. And we averaged about 12,000 people in 1988. It was a, it was a big year. Yeah, those late 80s, early 90s, I remember going to a lot of Senior Kings games and they were all sold out. So I can only imagine up there in Brisbane, there's a port there as well. Yeah, it was, it was awesome going around the country at that stage and, and, uh, yeah, a lot of you know teams were putting a lot of time into the schools, and and um, and we got big crowds from it. And because the Bullets had so much success on the court as well, um, you know they were far bigger than the Brisbane Bears back then in the AFL, and um, equivalent to about the Broncos. So it was exciting times in, in the late 80s and, and 90s as basketball really took off. Yeah, Shane, who took you under their wing, and what, what was the the biggest lesson that you learnt from them? Um. Yeah, I don't think anyone necessarily took me under their, their wing. Um, you know, I, I got a chance to play with guys like, um, like Sibley and, and, and Sengstock and Ron Radliff and Lero Loggins and these guys. So seeing how they operated and being part of that, um, only motivated me even more. But it also gave me belief that if they're the elite players in the country, then I can seriously contribute here. Um, and I didn't come in as a, a young kid going, oh, you know, I hope that I'm just going to be able to get some crap time at the, you know, at the end of the game. I, I really believe that I should be starting and contributing to it and ended up doing that. And uh, I think that belief certainly helped me moving forward. Yeah, you had that huge game in 94 where you dropped 61 points on him. How big was the bucket looking at that, at that stage? Yeah, it was, it was huge, actually. It was, um, but the week before that people don't necessarily talk about is that I, I had, um, I had five points, I think it was, against the Melbourne Magic or one of those teams. And I remember Bruce Palmer, who was our coach, who was pretty volatile and he wasn't necessarily the greatest bloke to play for. And I remember him yeah. ripping me to, after having a bad game and saying, you're too slow and you're, you're a step slow and I think you've <laughs> lost it and this and that. And I remember being so motivated in that game to come out and have a big one. And I think I got 50 and he took me off and Robert Sibley ran up to him and said, mate, put him back on. There's still a few minutes to go. He'll get 60. And uh, I think I hit a few more threes. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot, a lot of fun. And I look back and think, wow, that, that was a lot of points at, at, at that time. There wasn't a whole lot of assists that I threw in that game. But um, the, the, it was, it was uh, feeling good. And I think I only took 29 shots for the game. I think it was 19 for 29. Um, so I was pretty efficient with getting it done. But that's a beautiful stadium to play in when you're shooting the ball well. Really soft rings and great atmosphere up there. It used to go off in Townsville. Yeah. What age were you when you made your debut for the Boomers? Um, I, got, uh, I got cut for the 1990 World Championships. I was one of the last cut. and you know I felt like I was playing well enough to be able to potentially make that team. It didn't happen, but it ended up being a good thing because you know, it made me go away, work harder, and understand what it needed, I needed to do to become a, you know, a point guard that was going to play for Australia and then potentially start for Australia. So went away and, um, you know, 92 was my first Olympic Games that I went to, but obviously I had games leading up to that and uh, on tours going overseas. And 
you know, 92, I was, I was probably 12th man. I learned with Andrew Gaze and, and learned a lot about what it takes to be a pro. And, um, but going there, it made me hungrier as well because I wasn't playing any court time. And I sort of left that tournament saying, well, it's great to be here, but now I really want to make a difference and I want to start for Australia and contribute for Australia. And by 94, I was, I was doing that. I was lucky enough to get those opportunities. Yeah, who was starting at the point at 92? Uh, Phil Smythe. He was yep. the starting point guard. Um, Damien Keogh, um played the two, but also played some backup minutes as, as the point guard as well. So, you know, I didn't get too many opportunities, just the, the scraps, but I was happy to be there and learn and, and see what it was going to take. Yeah, you and Andrew Gaze had such a great, you know, friendship and, you know, on court, you guys just seemed, you know, the combination was just there. Are you disappointed a little bit that you didn't get really to play with him at club level? Well, it was sort of my own choice. I, I had the opportunity to, to, when I came back from Europe, um, to go there. They, they made a really big offer for me to go to play in Melbourne. I had a house in Melbourne. My family was from Melbourne. Um, you know, I loved, you know, training with them while I was overseas and all the rest of it. But, uh, and sometimes I, I look back and think, wow, it would have been nice to have played with him at Bracky and Lenard and, and those would have really gone on a, you know, real destiny there to be able to, you know, win a lot of championships. But, you know, I look back and I, I think that would have been the, the, you know, the real easy decision. It would have been sort of, you know, in, in, you know, in Australia anyway, it would have been like Kevin Durant going to them yeah, and not yeah. comparing myself to Durant, but just saying that, you know, a, an international player coming back playing with other players that are representing Australia, to Australia, it would have really, you know, we would have had a domination. And, you know, the harder choice for me was to go back and play for Sydney Kings and, Kings had never won a championship before. Um, it was always earmarked as the biggest underachieving franchise in sporting history and all the rest of it. And that challenge in itself to be able to go and be part of, you know, a championship and captain a championship and, and do that with Gorge was, um, was absolutely incredible and something that, um, you know, I've got really fond memories of now. Yeah. Whatever happened to Brian Gorgie? He's, he's coaching in um, China. And he's oh, been wow. there for, yeah, he's been there forever now. He's he's made a really good career in China and great international coach, obviously, and you know taking all the expertise that he's he's got and had in Australia. Unfortunately, we miss out on him in Australia, but um, yeah, doing good things over there. So hopefully, at some stage, he'll he'll come back. I think he will. Um, but he's been over there a long time. What was the biggest thing you reckon you learnt from from Gorge? Oh, defensively. Um, you know, Gorge was, was outstanding. We had a really good offensive team. I think it was actually a perfect blend because I think when Gorge came to Sydney, he'd lost five straight championships come Jeez. second. And, you know, I always saw Gorge as someone that was such a great defensive coach, but I thought his teams were really robotic, and I thought he recruited guys that were very robotic, guys that really couldn't break their man down or didn't want to break out of the offense really just followed the system and I thought it was the thing that always let them down. Um, so it was probably, a, a, you know, something that was made in heaven, that sort of matchup with George coming to Sydney who really didn't have a history of playing defence. Um, it wasn't necessarily my history of, of playing defence, but I could certainly score and I felt like he came and did that for us and uh, I felt like we gave him something and a weapon offensively that, you know, from a number of the players that we had, we could score all the way across the board. And I think we had 
four guys averaged more than 18 points the year we won the first mm. championship. He'd never sort of experienced, um, you know, that before. And um, But defensively, he, he was outstanding. And, and even from a coaching philosophy, I probably took more from him and what he did defensively and the belief that he gave his players and the way he worked his players, um, you know, into, into you know, when I had opportunities to coach and me coaching kids now. Yeah, Shane, it was actually interesting, like, the way, you know, watching a lot of you guys play back then is... Like, Gorge and you guys really introduced kind of a small ball because when you have a look at it, yourself and Kavossi Franklin in the backcourt, you're both sh- shorter players and you both play the 1-2. And then you had Matt Nielsen at centre and Chris Williams, he he wasn't a huge power forward either. So was that something that you guys did intentionally? Well, it's funny. I, I think he, because he got handed that team, he came in late and... Um, it's sort of what we had. We still had guys like Ben Melmoth and David Stiff, but they weren't big, powerful centres either. Um, and, and you're right, we were so mobile across the floor. And Chris Williams, and you know, saddest day when I heard that he he, he passed away um, he passed earlier away. this year. But he he oh, passed man. away earlier this year, and and he was only in his late thirties. But he was my favourite um, import of all time. The best bloke to, to to play with. He'd just come out of college. Um, he couldn't really shoot the ball from the perimeter, um, but gee, he was so smooth all the way across the the floor. Great passer, great rebounder for his size. Could score um, inside, play off the pick and roll, and was always in the right spot. So um, we just had a really well balanced team that got along really well. We enjoyed each other's company off the court, um, and we went hard, you know, probably on and off the court, and. Uh, you know, it was just a, a great memory to be able to get that win, and, and particularly winning in Perth was outstanding because it was such a raucous sort of um, environment that you go in against a really talented team, the Perth Wildcats. So to go and get that win, and, and really we wiped them off the floor and, and swept them in, in, you know, two zips. So um, just great memories. Yeah, did you feel a weight of expectation considering that you guys hadn't won before going into the series? Because Perth was a good team. Yeah, they were a great team. And, um, you know, game one, you know, we, we were really behind it. I think we were down by 14 points with about five minutes to go. And the stadium was sold out, and it was the who's who was at that game. The expectations were huge. And it was almost like, oh, here the Kings go again. Here's the expectation. They've got a great team. Um, you know, they finished equal top on the ladder, um, and, uh, and, and they've let this first game go. It's all over. But we sort of didn't have that mentality as a, as a group. We just kept fighting and then, you know, things started to go for us and we pressed them and created some turnovers and, um, it all started coming together and we just got momentum and steamrolled them at the end of the game. It was one of the greatest comebacks I've ever been part of, but particularly in such a, you know, such a critical game one of the grand final series. And after that game, it was like all the pressure was released. Um, we felt like we had that game. I knew we were going to Perth and my wife said, you know, I might just wait if there's a game three and, and, you know, and be part of the celebrations back here. And I said, there's no way you get to come to Perth because we're winning it in two. And, uh, and, and she came with us and, and we got it done. It was, um, yeah, unbelievable memory. Guys, we hope you're enjoying the episode with Shane Heal. If you're into your basketball, we've got a treat. Next on the show, we've got Leroy Loggins. Here's a preview to the next episode. I was using visualization when I was, when I was like, I came across that stuff when I was probably about 13 or 14. And 
as I got older, I learned to train my brain to play the game before I played it. So, say if we're playing, say, the Melbourne Tigers, I would sleep and eat and make myself dream about the game before I even played it. And also, I used to love my ginseng, which was legal. And, you know, I'd have a couple squigs of ginseng. It opened up my pores. I'm ready to go, you know. Also, I used to get acupuncture to help me focus. And, yep. you know, I used to catch a lot of slack in the locker room because the guys be like, oh, here he comes again. What's he going to do at halftime? Cut up the chicken, I guess. So, <laughs> you know, it was just one of those things, man. I just thought... And even when I got older, guys used to complain, oh, it's too hot. I don't want to train. I'd be like, it's too cold. I'm going in the car and get my coat. And guys, we would train hard for two and a half hours. Everyone would run to their car and go home. I would stay in the gym and I would just, if I didn't make 20 foul shots, I couldn't go home. And that's in a row without missing one. And that's how my, my, my foul shooting improved. So it was the whole mental attitude toward the game and once I got you know I met my wife and then she started getting me to take vitamins and looking after myself and you know eating properly and getting adequate rest and she would make me little little goodie packs to go on the road you know I felt like a little schoolboy going to school but so please if you haven't yet subscribe to the show via Apple iTunes or you can get it all online at www.talkingwithtk.com. If you want to get in touch with me, please connect with me via Facebook. It's Tristan Canal Fitness. Or send me an email, Tristan at talkingwithtk.com. But let's get back to today's show with Shane Hill. Just turning to the NBA now, Shane, when you first signed with Minnesota back in 96, you know, you came there as a star player for both in the NBL and Australia. And then you go into a team like Minnesota and, you know, you become one of 12 and you probably have to take a step back and play a lot off the bench and play a role play. How much did that affect you mentally? Um, I, I, when I reflect back on my time in the NBA, I see somebody that was probably, you know, not really understanding the NBA and mm. very impatient. Um, and that, that, that was me. That was, that were my traits. Um, and you're not meant to because no one had played in the NBA. Luke Longley was the only one there. So you don't understand yeah. how it works. And you look at the players now. Um, uh, and, and you've got to remember too, back in those days, there wasn't many players that were from outside America that were even playing in the NBA. So there wasn't a whole lot of respect for, for foreigners. Um, so I was lucky enough. I went and earned a three-year contract. I had probably the, the best basketball I ever played was at the summer league and at the internal camp for the Minnesota Timberwolves playing against the Farm Marbury. And you know they had a, a one-year non-guaranteed deal on the table for me, um, but I went and earned a three-year guaranteed deal. I shot the absolute bejeebies out of it. It was unbelievable the way I shot the ball. And so I earned my contract. Uh, they told me my first year I wasn't going to play a lot of court time. And the reason being is that they just um, drafted Stefan Marbury. Steph, he was yeah. like second or third draft, but he, um, in the draft. But he was only he'd only played one year of college, and he was really immature. He was only nineteen or something. 
and um, he was always going to be up and down. So they also signed Terry Porter, who obviously was a superstar in his day in the NBA, yeah. just a really experienced veteran, great guy too, and I learned so much from Terry Porter. But he was playing the backup minutes behind this young kid, and they always said that the second and third year was going to be my year. I just had to do my time. Um, but there was a lot of frustration with that because I knew I could contribute straight away. Um, so I, I went away. I worked really hard in the off season for the second year. Uh, had a great summer league um, and went and led the competition in the summer league in assists and uh, came back and, and then started the first five games of uh, first five games of exhibition because Marbury was out. And then I tore my calf and I was out for um, sixteen weeks and it really uh, mentally it just it just blew me. I just didn't have the I just didn't have the patience to be able to, you know, stick it out. Um, so yeah, I, I was whilst I wasn't young, I was very immature about understanding what it was going to take in the NBA. Yeah, what were the, you know, you obviously played a lot of the US guys at the Atlanta Atlanta Olympic Games and I think you earned a lot of respect from them. You stood up to Charles. You were dropping threes all over the place. What were the guys that you played against like to you when you played them on a regular basis? Yeah, it was funny. The the first time I saw those guys when we were going around the country, they would come up to me. Guys like Shaquille O'Neal would come up in the layup line, and, and I sort of look <laughs> up. I remember Shaq particularly because we played against him in 94 at the World Championships as well and I remember sort of going to the end of the layup line and he was going to the end of the layup line at the half court and I sort of looked up and sort of just nodded like damn that's Shaquille O'Neal and he <laughs> walked straight over to me gave me the big brother slap and just like my head's just gone into like his belly button as he pulled me <laughs> towards him to give him give him a hug and he had this massive smile on his face I'm like wow that's that's incredible not not just for me, but for Australian basketball, the sort of respect that we'd earned by being able to play against these guys. And, um, you know, he, he was such a big sort of kid, the way he was and the way he acted. But, you know, it was a, a nice memory that we were able to earn that respect and the, and the way they retreated us when I got there. Yeah, did, did Charles Barkley, you know, ever apologise for tripping you over? No, he didn't apologise, but the, when I saw him in the NBA... Um, the first time I saw him that wasn't on the court was in the uh, hotel lobby when we were in Houston. And we ended up playing them in, a, in a, um, the final series, in the first round of finals. And it was the first time Minnesota had made the playoffs. And I remember I was about to go to, um, uh, to my room, about to get in the elevator, and I hear um, someone yell, Shane! And I turn around <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's Charles Barkley. He's yelling out to me. So I turn around and then same thing. He gives me a bit of a hug, sit down, have a chat to him, and um, yeah, he was in, he was incredible. Um, and I, I think more than anything else, you know, Americans appreciate that Australians don't really care. We we treat everybody the same. We'll have a crack yeah. at it. We go hard, um, but then we'll sort of wipe ourselves off off the court and you know keep our heads up and away we go. And um, he, he he was he was fantastic. When he actually did it to you back, you know, on the the side court there, and you you stumble over, and you obviously get up, and you go chest to chest. Did you know who it was at the time? Well, I, I did when I, I hit the ground. I jumped back up, and it was like I was, I was feeling it was like my third or fourth three. So I was sort of I was in the zone. I was feeling great, and it was such a cheap shot. 
like he was way late. I should have got an extra shot um, as well with the foul. The, the, the basket went in. But when I hit the ground and I jumped back up, I saw it was who it was. And I was like, but I was so wild that the eyes sort of rolled. And then I gave him a few choice words, gave him a chest bump. And then he, he sort of didn't understand or, or couldn't believe what I'd said to him. And he's like, what you say? And then I repeated it. <laughs> and he, he then couldn't believe what I'd just told him. And, um, yeah, it sort of all started from there. And But he, he was off tap. He, he, he was out of control. And you see, when you look at the game, you know, there's one stage of the game, we go to a timeout, and there's a big sort of fracas, and he grabs me, and I grab him, and and I remember just being surrounded. I remember having my right hand up, and, and my dad always taught me as a kid, right or wrong, he said, if you're going to get in a fight, make sure you throw the first one. <laughs> and I had those words in the in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, geez, if I throw one here, I could be in a fair bit of trouble, though, because if he hits me, I'll be asleep for a week. But he, he, he was really out of control. And, and you see on the tape at one stage as well, as we're going to the timeout, he signals to the other end with his finger like a gun, and it's like he shoots us. And <laughs> he just lost it. And it's, and, and uh, Gary Payton was, was worse. I mean, the things that he was talking about and what he was going to do after the game and how he was, I'm looking at him like, mate, are you serious? He, he's like, <laughs> you're an NBA superstar, and you're that worried about me because I'm... You know, I've reacted to Charles Barkley. You kidding yourself? So it was a bit, um, it was a bit unreal at the time. And that was only an exhibition, right? Yeah, that was an exhibition game. And, you know, our mindset going into that game was, you know, we want to play hard. Obviously, it's going to be very highly unlikely that we're going to be able to beat these guys. But let's go and have a crack and see, you know, how far we can push them. But the Dream Team days were still very early back then and there was teams in exhibition games that were still getting photos taken with the dream team before and after games and getting autographs and all the rest of it and we're like we're not handling it like that there's no way we're going there and, and treating these guys like that so it wasn't something that you know we wanted to rough them up or anything but we just didn't take a backward step when they tried to step on us yeah Shane how hard was the transition from being a player to then being on the sideline as a coach um well, I, I, it was really hard for me the first time I did it because I was a player coach and it was unexpected. Yeah, and, and you know, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't, um, you know, I hadn't even thought about coaching. I was still playing. I'd only just come out of retirement. When I coached the Sydney Kings, I felt like, um, you know, I was ready for it. I'd done an apprenticeship. I did two years with the Australian team as an assistant coach. I'd coached in the state league. I had my philosophy set and I was ready to go. The, the, the only difficult thing in basketball that is, is completely different than, say, the AFL or a lot of the other sports is that we've got a lot of owners that are very reactive and small-minded and, and short-term sort of sighted. So I came into the Kings on a two-year contract, inherited a lot of players, very small budget, and they wanted to get results coming from, you know, last. Um, and they wanted to do it very quickly without understanding that it takes time to, you know, set a culture, pick the players that actually fit that culture over a couple of year period. And in any pro sport, you know, it takes, you know, probably three to five years to be able to turn that around and build something that can be sustainable. And uh, we made the playoffs in my first year and, and just missed the playoffs in the second year. But, you know, it wasn't something I would continue on with that group yeah. of owners after two years. In terms of, you know, things, you know, you talked about culture, what were the essential sort of things that they had to tick 
tick the box, so to say, before you allow them into you know your system? Well, it was hard because I didn't have you know the right to be able to do that because I inherited half of the team. Yeah. So there was players that I inherited, and this is hard when you're coming in, you know, as a coach. Um, if you've got half of the team already signed and you're coming in and taking over a team that's last, um, it's very difficult to be able to change people's personalities and what they stand for and their own culture and the way they live their life and the way they've lived their basketball life. And the thing that, you know, frustrated me and, and makes it very difficult to change is people don't love the game and they don't have a love to go and do the work that it takes to be the very best player you can, then it's really hard to suck eggs as a coach. And you can influence people and you can try and change people, but unless they want to do that themselves, it becomes a really tough sort of blend. And I had a couple of those guys that just didn't fit, you know, the way, you know, the same passion that I had for basketball. And you can always tell the people that have passion, you, you know, you, you come to training, you know, the day after a game that's been on TV and you, you sit around and start talking about the game and you'll notice those people that don't really have the passion didn't watch, didn't care, yeah. didn't even think to really watch the game. Whereas the guy I speak about, Ben Madgen, you know, he's watching everything he can because you want to mm-hmm. be the best and get every advantage you can and you learn and you're into it. Um, to me, passion is one of the keys to success. In It's not just you know basketball or football or sport. It's business. It's in anything that you do. Yeah, because that happened to you at the Dragons too, right? When Price came in, he just didn't have the same sort of passion as the playing group, did he? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a really tough situation because I went there because Price was going to be the coach. He, you know, he was an NBA superstar, and I was going to be coached by a legend of the NBA that played the same position as me that was a shooting guard. And um, you know, I'd, I'd retired for a couple of years. I um, I had to shift down from Gold Coast where I was based to to take up that contract and and uh, and come out of retirement. And part of what motivated me as well is that people said you can't do it at 36 and especially when you haven't played for a couple of years so that motivated me but then it was really evident in the early days that um you know mark price was there that wanted to sort of dabble in coaching didn't want to do it in america where he was under the microscope but sort of brought his whole family and you could tell was more on a holiday than he was to actually try and be the very best coach he could and to be able to, you know, make us the very best team we could. And I think it was zero and six and, um, you know, the owners had to react. It was evident for everybody that was around that, you know, he just wasn't the right person moving forward and things wouldn't change. Yeah, but you still ended up making the playoffs. Yeah, well, we went on a run. Um, you know, I changed an import. Um, I thought about it. I, I, I said to them, I can't remember whether I asked for 24 hours or 48 hours because I knew... If I'm playing, the coach is sacked, and then they give me the playing coaching job, then you know there's going to be a lot of people that are saying that I undermined it, and that's exactly what happened. There was a yeah. you know a, a big portion of people that said you're wrong for you know doing that and, and whatever. They, all the people around the club and from the ownership to the players all knew that obviously wasn't the case. But um, you know I took it on and. We made some adjustments and we got some some results really quickly and we went from zero and six to end up making the playoffs and I think that's the first franchise that ever made the playoffs in their first year. So, you know, the players really backed me and, and jumped on and, and we got some great results and um, yeah, it was a it was a fun year. 
Okay, Shane, I've just got a couple of personalities just to wrap up the interview. The first question, mate, did you have, during your playing career, even now, do you have a morning or nightly routine that you have to do every day? When I was playing? Either playing or even now. Yeah, even now. Oh, no, I don't have a routine now. I'm hopeless now. Um, but when I was playing, not so much a routine, but I was I was so onto every detail. My, my thing was more about what I ate, my exercise, my recovery. I was just all on to, you know, being the very best I could and try not to leave any stone unturned. And um, so I was pretty fickle when it came to sort of that, that sort of stuff. Did you have a favourite court to play at all? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I, I loved Townsville, obviously, having some big games there, and I loved the rings there. Um, I loved playing at the Entertainment Centre. I mean, it really was in, in Sydney. Um, you know, that, that crowd and the memory of winning Game 1 in the Grand Final Series, and, um, you know, it's a very different um, stadium the way it was because it only had the three sides to it. Um, but yep. the atmosphere was fantastic, and when basketball was really going off in Sydney, then basketball was going off in all of Australia, and um, that was one of the key pieces, so it was a good memory. All right, I'm going to take you back to your childhood, Shane. What posters did you have on your bedroom wall growing up? I had a couple. I had um, Dr. J, um, so I don't know why, because he's athletic and long and could do things that I would <laughs> never do. Um <laughs> But the other person that I looked up to, um, and I'm a big AFL fan, I barrack for Geelong, but the person I looked oh, yeah. up to was Dermot Brereton. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Dermot was Dermot my Dermot. man. And, yeah, yeah, Dermot knows that. And um, I guess when you look at you know his peroxide hair and his earrings and all of the things, <laughs> the way he grew up, and I wore number 23 for footy and then on to basketball because of Dermy. Most people think, Obviously, it's because of Jordan, Jordan and whatever yeah. else, but it was it was Dermot Brereton growing up in my football days. Okay, you just stole one of my questions, so I was going to ask you why you wore the 23, but you just answered it pretty good. Yep, yeah, right, he, final, was, he, was, he was the man. Final question, Shane. You're going to be hosting a private dinner party. You've got five invites. Now, the only rules, no family or friends, but it can be anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to invite? Oh, that's... um. Yeah, that's out of control, that question. <laughs> um, I'll go uh, Muhammad Ali. I'll go um, uh, I'll go Alan Jones. He, he, he's a friend, but he just makes an unbelievable dinner party. His knowledge and, and conversation is out of control. I'll go Michael Jordan. Yeah, I'll go Michael Jordan. Um, there's three. Um, let's throw Dermy in there for a bit yeah. of colour. Yeah, we'll throw him in there if he's a childhood, you know, hero. Um, and uh, I need a girl in there, mate. I need a girl in there. Well, I'll um, bring a girl. <laughs> um, all right, let's go. Um, let's go, uh, Penny Taylor, because she's one of the greatest women's basketballers that we've seen. Yeah. We'll throw her That's in good. for looks and personality. <laughs> All right, Shane, before I let you go, on everyone following Shane on Instagram and Twitter, he's Shane Hill, or you also can hit him up online. He's EliteBasketballDevelopment.com.au. Shane Hill, thank you so much for sharing all these different memories with me. It's been an absolute blast. Like I told you before we got on the got on the air, I used to go down to Kingdom and always watch you play. So it's uh, made my day, so I really appreciate you stopping by, bud. 
Gilani and Tristan. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. And guys, that was the episode with Shane Hill. We really hope that you enjoyed it. If you liked it, please share it with your family and friends. Tell them about the show. If you've got any guest suggestions or want to get in touch with me, please connect with me on Facebook. I'm either Tristan Cannell or Talking With TK or shoot me an email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. But for now, I'm Tristan Cannell and this was Talking With TK.